this morning I'm asking you once again, and this is the, how many times have I said to turn to page 1073, which is where you'll find the Gospel of John, chapter 17. John chapter 17, when we began our study on John 17, we grounded everything that we would say and study in that wonderful section of the book of Hebrews chapter 7. And as you are familiar with the book of Hebrews and its main arguments, the author argues that Jesus is better than the angels, he is better than Moses as a mediator, he is better than the priest, the high priest who offers the sacrifices in the temple. And, and he goes through those, the first two fairly briefly, and spends most of the time, and we would agree that the argument for the priesthood of Christ and what that priesthood involves is really the greater of the arguments that he lays out in the book of Hebrews. And in chapter 7, he speaks in this way of our Savior. This becomes even more evident when another priest, and his reference there is to Jesus, arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of requirement, legal requirement, concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, a quote from Psalm 110. And as he goes on in chapter 7, the writer of the book of Hebrews reminds his readers that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, Jesus, the eternal son, now taking on human flesh, you, Jesus, are a priest forever. This therefore makes him a guarantor of a better covenant. So the, the better aspect of Hebrews, Jesus is better than this, better than this, better than this. He's also the mediator of a better covenant, a better, more glorious covenant. And then he says these words, which are the ones I want to get to as we talk about the foundation of our study in John 17. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. Now, where do we see that fulfilled? Well, of course, in the book of Hebrews, the writer goes on to talk about his priestly ministry with respect to the sacrifice of himself, that Jesus' sacrifice is far better because he is a far better priest, not after Aaron and his sons by legal requirement, but after the order of Melchizedek. And he offers up himself the argument of the book of Hebrews says for several chapters for our sins once for all a sacrifice unlike the endless sacrifices of bulls and goats under the old covenant. Jesus the writer of Hebrews says enters into the very presence of the father with his own blood the heavenly tabernacle which is the original the earthly tabernacle being a copy of the heavenly one. 
all of those types and shadows and signs find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This is his argument, right? And so the primary thing we think of when we think of the priestly ministry of Jesus is his offering of his own self, his blood taken into the Holy of Holies in heaven itself and satisfying the wrath of his father against the sins of his people so that the father might extend through Jesus and by the power of the spirit, the forgiveness of our sins, the sanctification of our lives, all that we've learned already in our study of John 17. Now, this really is the focus, isn't it? And it's probably the primary one as to how Jesus fulfills his priestly office. But it's not all. It's not the only thing. For Hebrews 10, 7 tells us that through the sacrifice of himself for the sins of his people, once for all, his priestly ministry is not over. It continues as he faithfully serves as our high priest in that he always lives to make intercession for us. And that is what we see in John 17. It is an example, a picture of his ongoing intercession for us. It's displayed there that we might see the heart of Jesus for his people as he intercedes for them before the Father. We noted in our study those three main sections. I repeat this most often because it's good for us to be reminded. In John 17, 1 through 5, he prays for himself that the Father would be glorified in the hour that has now come. He's on the eve of his suffering and death at the cross, the work the Father gave him to do. And as he comes to that, he prays his passion, his desire, his all-consuming desire is that the Father would be glorified in the Son as the Son fulfills everything that the Father has given him to do. He speaks of it as a work already accomplished. You may remember in those verses. And then in John 17, 6 through 19, Jesus prays specifically for his earthly disciples, the ones given to him by the Father, called from eternity past, but given in time and space, who served with him as he lived on this earth. He prays for them specifically because they would be his messengers. They would take the word that he gave to them and deliver it, if you will, through their preaching and teaching to the world so that the gospel that they first learned from Jesus would be extended to the whole world. And we see some wonderful things in those verses that we've just concluded studying. And then John 17, of course, verse 20 through 26, is the final section that we'll begin to look at this morning, where Jesus prays for all of those who will believe in him because of their witness. That is, these 11 Obviously, plus Paul, plus Matthias, in the ways that God used them as well to take the gospel into the entire, the whole world. This is the place, for sure, where we can say that Jesus is praying for me, specifically if you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. He always, in this sense, makes intercession for you, dear believer, here this morning. So this morning, we're going to look at this. We're going to take, as we did when we began the study of the previous section, a bird's eye view first of what Jesus prays for and how this is to be a great encouragement to us this morning and in the coming weeks. My hope is that it would whet your appetites for what we will see and learn together. With that more lengthy introduction, I would ask that you would stand briefly as we read these words, John 17, verse 20 through 26. 
This is the word of the Lord, beginning again in verse 20. Hear now God's word. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me, before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Thus far the reading of God's word, all flesh is as the grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have preserved for all time these words, precious words of our Savior, praying for us. May we hear his words and may we think of him really, truly, praying for us then, even as he prays for us now. And may we take great encouragement and comfort in these things, for we pray and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, we know because we've said, as we've studied together, that what Jesus is doing in this prayer, though it is separated into these sections... They are examples, they are examples, the substance of which Jesus prays for every true believer. So what we read in verses 1 through 5 as he prays to the Father about himself and his own work, we glean from that by application that Jesus himself is praying for us in that same way, that we might have as our chief aim and pleasure in this life and always the glory of God that he would give us and has indeed already, if we are his, given us eternal and everlasting life. In the second section, we've learned a lot about how he prayed for his disciples, and we saw how as wise his prayer was, given who they were and the world in which they were living. We need to remember as well that we, like them, are not of this world. This is not our home Our home now has been transferred to heaven itself. That is our eternal home, and it is our present home to which we lift our eyes day after day. He prayed for them that they might be kept from the evil one. He prays for us the same way, that we would be kept as well from the evil one, the one who would seek to destroy us or the work that he has begun in us. And of course, last time, just again by application that we too, as he prays for those disciples to be sanctified by the truth, thy word is truth, that we too would be sanctified, set apart as holy, even as we already are in Christ, but increasingly, progressively, more and more being made 
like Jesus by the word of God, the method, the instrument that he uses to make us more and more like Jesus. Now, this entire prayer to this point, we can again rightly say is applied to us as true believers in Jesus Christ. And and, and I hope you've seen, as I have, that this is such a great comfort to us as we live in the same world, hostile to Christ and the things of Christ, hating us as it hated him, that this would be a great encouragement to know that he prays for us in these specific ways, ways that he did even for his disciples while they were with him on the earth. But it is in these verses, specifically 20 through 26, that he turns his attention to all of those who would believe through their word. Now, you remember the way this works as we've studied the prayer. Earlier in chapter 17, in verse 14, he says, I've, I've given them the word. I've given them your word, Lord. Earlier, he says the same thing. He's, he's been faithful to discharge everything that the Father had given to him to do. And part of that means that he would teach them, instruct them, give them the word of God. And now he calls them to take that word and to take it into the world. They, with the disciples as the foundation, would then go on to take the message of the gospel through the word of God into this world. And that's the whole focus here, is that that his aim is that they would be sent into the world, as we saw it last time, sent them into the world, verse 18. I'm sending them into the world with this word that many would come to believe. Now he prays for them, for you and for me, in verse 26, or verse 20 through 26. There are several things I want to note this morning, and really by way of overview, this is not uh, really getting into the heart of some of these things, but it is really looking at it uh, from above and then laying out where we're going to go in the coming weeks. The first thing I want us to see is really in that first verse, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, that is, for the disciples for whom he was praying in the previous section, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, as I was thinking about this all week, actually from or even before this week, I'm struck by the, the, the great encouragement that this verse gives. And, and maybe it's not as clearly seen, but I hope it will be after we look at it this morning. Uh, This passage teaches us that we are, as believers, followers of Jesus Christ, intimately known by God. We are intimately known by God. What a wonder it is to be known by God. That is what Jesus really is saying. When, When he says here, I'm also praying for those who will believe in me, Is it any less true that Jesus, knowing in the previous section, the specific people living with him those three and a half years for whom he was praying, is it any less true that when he says, for those who will believe in me through their word, that he has in mind specifically every one the Father has given to him from eternity past? He he is God. He is omniscient. He knows all things, the beginning from the end. Is it beyond reasonable 
to imagine that when Jesus says these words, we would not think of them in a general, non-specific way, but that we would actually understand that in that moment and in those words, Jesus has, as it were, and indeed it is a mystery to us, how God, being omniscient, knowing all things, the beginning from the end, the present and the past, instantly, instantaneously before him, the mind of God is beyond our ability to fathom, but that Jesus would be thinking specifically about every single believer, including you and me as we sit here this morning, and everyone in every part of the world who has ever lived or will live, that they are all covered, not in a general sense, but in a specific sense. Now, now, I say this for lots of reasons, not the least of which I believe the Bible would encourage us to think about it in this way. That when he says, for all of those who will believe, he had you, if you're a believer this morning, and me in his mind. That in his mind's eye, he has his eye upon us, every true believer, at once before him. There's a great illustration I was reminded of this week. It's in the book of Exodus 28 where Moses has given all of these commandments. And we can sometimes tire because we're so distant from the old covenant and the, all of the commandments that God had given with regard to the priesthood and the sacrifices. But the, there are wonderful nuggets of truth in those passages that we ought to glean great comfort from. And one of them comes from Exodus 28, where he's talking about the breastplate of judgment that is to be made for the high priest. And you may know that on that breastplate, that would be according to Exodus 28, in the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns of fine twined linen, you shall make it. It will be square and doubled, a span its length and a span in its breadth. And you shall set in it four rows of stones. How many stones total? Twelve. Twelve stones representing what? God's people is represented by the twelve tribes of Israel. And as God was given these instructions, there's a wonderful part towards the end where all of this sort of comes to its fullness. And this is what verse 29 of chapter 28 of Exodus says. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastplate of judgment you shall put the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Isn't that a wonderful picture? These 12 stones, each representing a tribe, which represents the whole of the old covenant people of God, that they were warned by the priest as they went into the Holy of Holies to put them before the remembrance of God. Now, that was representative. That was the tribes by name, but it represented all of the people as well. In the same sense, I think, as Jesus prays for all of those who would believe, it's that same understanding and idea that Jesus is carrying, as it were, representatively before the Father, all of those who would believe in Jesus through their word and testimony. And he's carrying them before the Father in this prayer. 
as those stones would have been before the, the God of the Holy of Holies on Aaron's chest, on the breastplate of judgment. It's the same image, the same uh, picture. And it's a wonderful picture that God cares individually about his people. Not merely as a sum or a total, but individually we are brought before the Lord. And that's what I think is happening here. We know this is the way God works. Remember the opening words of the prophet Jeremiah. As Jeremiah comes to hear his call from the Lord, this is the way the Lord presented it to him. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. That word to know Jeremiah before he was formed in the womb is a word of intimate knowledge. It's truly the word that describes God's full, exhaustive knowledge of Jeremiah before he ever existed. Now, those of you who know the teachings of Mormonism, this is not Mormonism. This is not spirit babies in heaven waiting for physical bodies on earth. So Mormons are driven to have more and more children so that those spirit babies already existing can come down into physical bodies. That's part of the teaching of Mormonism. That's not what it's talking about. God, whose knowledge transcends time and space, knew Jeremiah before he was ever born. He committed himself to Jeremiah's good. He had set apart Jeremiah before he ever came into this world to be his prophet to the nations. David has a similar way of expressing this in Psalm 139. For you formed, and this is David speaking to God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. In response to that, you know Psalm 139, David cries out to the Lord, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. That God would know us intimately with a knowledge that is exhaustive and with an aim that he has prepared for us all that we will ever do from before the foundations of the world is the sense here that both Jeremiah and David express and understand. And my point in beginning this way is to tell you and to remind myself that this is what Jesus is saying In John 17, when he says, I I also pray for all of those who would believe in me through their word. He knows every single one of us. He's known from before the foundation of the world, every single one of us. Our names have been written if we belong to him, either now or he will call us in the future. If we belong to him, our names are written in the book of the Lamb's book of life. That is the knowledge of God. So when he prays for us, my point is this. He prays for you specifically. He knows your every need. We're not a large church. We share a lot together about the needs that we have. 
but there is no one in this room who has ever shared with everyone or anyone in this room every possible need that they have. We keep things private for various reasons. We walk alone to our own fault sometimes for various reasons, but there is one who knows us intimately and exhaustively, who knows every pain, every struggle, every uh, discouragement, everything that goes on in our lives, though not known by many, if any, in this church or your pastors, is known by Christ, the great and good shepherd, the faithful pastor and shepherd of your soul. So when Jesus says these words, they're not, again, throwaway. They're not to be ignored. They're to be looked at, understood, and examined, and to realize that what he is saying is that he knows you. And when he's praying here, when his disciples could hear his voice, he's praying for you and for me. That is a wonderful thing. And with David, we would say, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, and how vast are the sum of them. Now, knowing all of this, and it really is the first thing to note about this passage, there are then three things that I want to cover very quickly this morning, themes that will then become the sermons of the next few weeks. The first is the prayer in verses 20 through 23, and you've heard it read, I won't read it again, but you've heard it already, that they, that is, all of those whom the Father has given to the Son, would be united as one, that they would be united as one. It is the unity of the body which is in view. This is what is on the heart of Jesus as he prays. If you look back to verse 11, for instance, he says this, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one. You see, we saw this earlier. Jesus' desires that his body, his church, the disciples, and all of those who would believe in him through their word and testimony would be united together as one. Now, if you follow the teaching of the New Testament, as Paul writes and Peter writes and John writes, you know that this theme of unity is incredibly important in the Bible. The unity of God's people is an extraordinarily important thing for Jesus and for his disciples, those that he's speaking of right now. Now, as we'll see, by unity, we don't mean uniformity. We don't mean everybody looks the same, acts the same, etc., that we're all just simply cardboard cutouts of something. That's not what we're talking about. It's not uniformity. It is a unity that is rooted in the spirit. In fact, it's, it's a unity that is rooted in conformity to Jesus Christ. In fact, the previous passage, sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth, is the foundation of our unity. That's our unity. The truth of God's word and our conformity unto it, which means ultimately conformity unto the Lord Jesus Christ. It's related to that. That's what the unity is. Our unity, according to Jesus, is what flows out of our conformity to him and to his word. Now, we're going to talk about more because this is merely a bird's eye view introduction. But it's so important for us to see at the outset that this is the great burden of Jesus. And you can see it in the passage, right? 
that the unity that he's talking about, he has the boldness to say that it is equivalent to the unity that exists within the Godhead. That, that itself, as we'll see, it is an amazing thought that Jesus wants our unity as we live on earth as a body of Jesus Christ to be like the unity that exists between the Father and the Son and the Spirit within the Trinity itself. Now, what, what does that mean? We'll see what that means. But Paul mentions this as we wrote or heard earlier from our New Testament reading in Ephesians chapter 4. As he writes in that second part of Ephesians, applying the doctrines of the first three chapters, he says, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What is the essence of that manner or that calling? It is Christian unity. With all humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We, we cannot underestimate the importance of biblical unity within the body of Christ. And he goes on to say, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, we're all one in Jesus Christ. The application of that, as we'll see, goes on and on in various places. 1 Corinthians 12, the body is one body. One rejoices, we all rejoice. One mourns, we all mourn. Each contributing to the body in the unity of the body by the use of their gifts for the growth of the body itself, for the good of the others. I think this underscores for us in our denomination the importance of confessions and catechisms. That was an attempt, a valiant attempt, a faithful attempt in the 1600s, right? After the Reformation had come through Luther and Calvin and so many others, the English, the Puritans of England and Scotland gathered together, and their purpose was to come up with an expression of our unity in doctrine because our unity is always in doctrine, it is the teaching of God's word. Thy word is truth. And so our confession, our catechisms, is an expression of our unity as a denomination. All of our officers take vows to submit themselves to the confession and catechisms of our church. Why? Because it expresses our one voice, our unity in the body of Christ. I think many of the problems we're facing as a denomination is rooted right here. Right here in those who are rejecting some of the key, basic, and most important fundamental doctrines of our church. The doctrine of sanctification, for instance, is really under attack when we see some of these teachings and some of these debates having, that we're having in our church. It undermines the unity of the body of Christ. Now, we'll talk about that and the various teachings of our confession and catechism the next time as we talk about the full picture of this unity. But I want you to see as we look at this from above that there is a call here that we might be united as one. Secondly, notice in verse 24, that's verse 20 through 23. Verse 24 is really one single thought as you look at it. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Think of John 14. I go to a place to prepare for you so that where I am, you can be with me. 
to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The second thing that Jesus prays for here is that his church, his people, who would believe because of their testimony, their word, would see the glory of Christ. That we would see the glory of Christ. Now, there was a time on earth as Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration that three of his disciples saw his glory, but for a moment. Peter, James, and John were taken with Jesus. He was, if you will, veiled in that glory as they saw the brightness of the glory of Jesus Christ, which he possesses with the Father, never lost, simply laid it aside according to Philippians chapter 2, but displayed there for them so much so that Peter said, I wish we could just build some tabernacles and just stay here forever. That was the immediate response of Peter in seeing so briefly the glory of Jesus Christ. His prayer here is that every believer would see that. Every single believer would see his glory. Now, the only place we're going to see it is in heaven. That's why he says what he says. I pray that they would be with me where I am with you, Father, and that all of those whom you have given to me would behold my glory. Now, we'll talk about this again in more detail when we come to study this particular verse as one of the three that we'll look at. This is a glory that, again, he laid aside in his humiliation according to Philippians 2, but a glory that will be revealed in him in all of its fullness when he comes again and we go to be with him forever. It's the glory, the power of Jesus, the sanctifying nature of that holiness that is expressed in this sense and word glory that John recalls in his first letter where he says, everyone who has this hope of seeing the glory of God in Jesus Christ purifies himself even as he is pure. You see, that's the outworking of seeing the glory of Christ. Now in heaven, we'll already be fully glorified and fully sanctified and made like him. But now it serves as an impetus, a motivation for our purity and for our being made more and more like him. The last two verses then, as we continue to look in an overview, is verse 25 and 26. And you can see here what the emphasis is. It's that the church of God, the ones who would believe in him through their word, would come to know the love of God. That they would come to know the love of God. Now, some might say, well, don't we already know the love of God? Yes, we do. But that we would come to know it more fully. Jesus had demonstrated to them the love of God, and he calls them to do the same as he prays for them and as he encourages them. John 13 reminds us of those words of Jesus, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The love of God displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ and the work of God's spirit in our lives is what transforms us and by his grace enables us to love one another so that others in the world who see us will know 
without a doubt that we belong to Jesus. It's what Jesus says here, right? I made known to them and will continue to make it known. I'm sorry, verse 25. Even though the world does not know you, I know you and those know you that, have, that you have sent me. They know that you have sent me. The disciples have seen the evidence of the love of the Father to the Son. And they know the Father sent the Son. Now Jesus sends us into the world and the world will know that we are his and that he has sent us. First John again, 1 John 1.4, that which we have seen and heard, that is Jesus, we proclaim also to you that so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The communion letter that I sent this week is and was intentionally a reminder of this very point. The love that Jesus wants us to know is the love that he knows from the Father. And so the invitation of the Bible and of this prayer, the end result of this prayer, is that we would enter into, and this is a thought too marvelous for us to grasp, that we would enter into that love that the Father has for the Son, a perfect, perfect love, without blemish, without spot. Michael Reeves, again, quoting from the communion letter, but from his book, one would never dare imagine it, he says, but Jesus declares that his desire is that believers might be with him in the bosom of the Father. It's a wonderful way to put it. You think of uh, mothers and their children as they hold them close in their bosom. You think of that picture of incredible love and union. Jesus declares that his desire is that believers might be with him in the bosom of the Father. That indeed is why the Father sent him, that we who have rejected him might be brought back not merely as creatures, but as children to enjoy the abounding love that the Son has always known. Isn't that an incredible thought? That what he's praying for us here in these last two verses is that we would enter into this, the very bosom of God the Father, and experience the love that he has for his one and only Son. Because through that Son, he has made us his people children and adopted us and brought us near. It is, I believe, as we get to study that, too glorious for us to fully grasp, to fully understand. But we can, even now, we can bask in the light and glory of these things and give thanks to God that we have a Savior who is praying them for us, that we would be united as one in him, that we would see both now in an ever increasing way then in the fullness the glory of Jesus and that we would know truly know the love of God I think as we close out and prepare to come to the Lord's table I think there's a final picture I want to give you where I think Jesus is teaching us the very same thing as he taught his disciples in John chapter 10 again it's really John who brings all of these ideas to the forefront 
As Jesus, as we said in the very first sermons on this section, before we even got into the verses, that what Jesus is doing is taking his teachings, all that he's taught his disciples, and he's praying them. Something we learned that we should be doing as we read God's word and we pray that word for ourselves and for others. That's what Jesus is doing. And as he does that, I think what comes to the forefront in my mind is the passage in John chapter 10. John 10 contains the great passage on Jesus teaching about himself being the good shepherd of his sheep. You remember it, I trust. These are the words he says. Listen to the parallel. Listen to the teaching now coming through in his prayer. I am the good shepherd, he says. I I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep. Same as the prayer. I have others for whom I'm praying that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And so there will be one flock, unity, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. All of those elements are there in that teaching of Jesus in John chapter 10. He's the good shepherd. He's the faithful shepherd of one body over which he is the one shepherd. So you see the unity there clearly. You you see the love that the Father loves him, and he welcomes us into that love. You see all of these things in that passage because Jesus is taking what he has taught and he's praying it for his own. Are you his this morning? Have you heard his voice? Are you known by him? It's a little deceptive because you are known by him. But are you known in salvation by him? Have you come again to know his voice? Have you come this morning to know his love for Christ and in Christ for you? Are you this very day and this very moment one for whom Jesus is praying with perfect knowledge and asking the Father to grant you these things. I pray earnestly the trust this morning that you are, that you are by his grace. If not, I pray that he might be gracious even now and by his spirit to so work to reveal himself to you that you too with us might marvel at such a love the Father has shown us. Let us pray. O Father in heaven, our glorious God, we thank you and we praise you for these marvelous and wonderful truths. They are too much for us. Our hearts and minds cannot possibly contain the fullness of them. And yet by the Spirit, you patiently and always are pressing these truths into our hearts and minds that we might by that spirit be made more and more like Jesus, that we might know more and more the love that Jesus knows, the love of the Father to a son, that we would know that love, that we would enter into it with great joy, that we would glory in it. Father, grant us these things, we pray, and work among us that those who may be apart from this love now 
may come by your Holy Spirit and his powerful work to know this love, this unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and to know a Savior who faithfully prays for them. For we pray and ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.